In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Thus opens John's Gospel. And the referent of the title, the Word, who that refers to, is the Son of God who, verse 14 of John chapter 1 tells us, became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's not a controversial statement to say that the Word refers to the Son of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. But it's an important one to make explicit as we're actually not going to get past verses 1 through uh, 3 this morning. John's Gospel introduces Jesus to us. First, as the Word. Why does he do so? Why does John introduce us first to Jesus as the Word? D.A. Carson of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, whose commentary on John is widely regarded as the overall best, speaks at length to this question. He says, What is meant by the Word? The underlying term logos was used so widely and in such different contexts in first century Greek that many suggestions as to what it might mean here have been put forward. The Stoics understood Logos to be the rational principle by which everything exists and which is of the essence of the rational human soul. Others have suggested a background in Gnosticism, a widespread, ill-defined movement in the Mediterranean world of the first three centuries. Still others think John is borrowed from Philo, a first century Jew who was much influenced by Plato and his successors. Along these lines, Rick Philip, Rick Phillips, pardon me, quotes the philosopher Plato, who said in the fourth or fifth century BC, "It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal everything and make everything plain." If this sort of thing is what John had in mind, then Phillips goes on to say, in a stroke of divine genius. John seizes on this word and says, Listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you have been writing for centuries, the Logos of God has come to earth as a man, and we have seen him. But as appealing as this line of thought might be to us, and while there may be a secondary meaning along these lines, Carson points us actually away from delving into extra biblical, uh, into the extra biblical use of the term, and encourages us instead to delve into the term's usage in the Old Testament. However, the Greek term is understood, Carson says, there is a more readily available background than that provided by Philo or Greek philosophical schools. Considering how frequently John cites the Old Testament. That is the place to begin. In case you didn't get the gist of what Carson said, let me summarize and simplify. John didn't borrow a term from Philo, or from the Stoics, or from the Gnostics. John borrowed a term from the Old Testament. 
the Word of God or the Word of the Lord is not a new concept as we come to the New Testament and as we come to the beginning of John's Gospel. And so we would do better to trace its biblical roots than to trace possible connections to extra-biblical sources. In other words, well, the Greek philosophers, no doubt, would have found John's term intriguing. No doubt it would have appealed to them as those who had been talking about the Logos for centuries. John's use of it isn't primarily throwing a bone to the Greek philosophers. But rather, John's use of the term is putting flesh and bone upon an Old Testament term and concept. So to reiterate then, we need to look more closely at the Old Testament use of the term word than the philosophical use of the term word if we're really going to understand what John meant by the term. So what is it about the word of the Lord that we're supposed to import into our understanding of Jesus as the word here in John chapter 1? To answer that, we need to see what the word of the Lord does in the Old Testament. How the word of the Lord functions in the Old Testament. And when we look to do this, we see that primarily the word of the Lord does two things in the Old Testament. Let's look at these two. First, the word of the Lord reveals the Lord. And secondly, the word of the Lord accomplishes the Lord's purposes in the world. So another way of saying these two things is that in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is God's revelation. And in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is God's active power. So let's look at each of these concepts in turn, beginning with the word as God's revelation. There's no doubt that the word of God functions in the Old Testament as the clearest revealer of God. Romans 1 teaches us that general revelation, the things that have been made, make it clear that there is a God. And we can properly infer at least some things about God from general revelation. But there are things that cannot be inferred. And it is God's speech in the Old Testament that reveals Him most fully. Consider Moses' request for God to show him his glory. Listen to Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that is Yahweh, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses wanted to see God's glory. But instead of showing him his face, God proclaimed his name to Moses. Consider also Elijah's encounter with God on the same mountain many years later, as recorded for us in 1 Kings. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Or the phraseology that many of us might be accustomed to from our upbringing. 
a still, small voice. Consider finally the primary nature of God's dealings with mankind throughout the Old Testament. The Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12 and verse 1. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Genesis 26 and verse 2. The Lord appeared beside him and said to Jacob, Genesis 28, 13. The Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said. This is how we're introduced to God's first significant dealings with each of the patriarchs. The Lord said. And then we read on. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, to Nathan, to Elijah, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Hosea, to Joel, to Amos, to Micah, to Zephaniah, to Haggai, to Zechariah, to Malachi, and in fact to many others. The word, the word of the Lord came. To be sure, the Lord appears to people in the Old Testament. But the primary way that He revealed Himself to His people, His character, His will, and so on, was through the Word coming to mankind. The Word coming to mankind. We need, therefore, to bring this concept across from the Old Testament into the introduction of John's Gospel. When John uses the term, the Word, we need to import the concept of God's self-disclosure. God's revelation of Himself into the meaning of that term. Whatever else the Word is going to be in the subsequent chapters of John's Gospel, He is certainly going to be at least the revealer of God. As the word of the Lord was the primary revealer of God in the Old Testament. Next we see that in the Old Testament, the word is God's active power. Rick Phillips summarizes this point neatly. All through the Bible, it is God's word that does God's will. The word of the Lord does not just communicate Information in the Old Testament. The Word of the Lord is active powerfully and has effects throughout the Old Testament. A sampling of Old Testament passages will highlight this quite clearly. Regarding creation, Genesis 1 and Psalm 33, verse 6 make the point that God's Word is more than mere talk, God's Word is His power at work. To create. In Genesis 1, we read over and over, and God said, and there was light, and living creatures, and vegetation, and so forth. God's word is more than mere talk in Genesis chapter 1. God's word is God's power at work, in that case, to create. Psalm 33 and verse 6 summarizes this concept. By the word, 
of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. That second line helps us understand that it doesn't mean that God gave the word and then creation happened, but literally by the word, the creation happened. In other words, you wouldn't say that a great city was built by the word of a wonderful architect and mean the same thing as it means when it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In other words, it doesn't mean simply that the architect gave the word or the engineers gave the word and such and such a thing was built. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. It was literally God's word which created. Not God's word which instigated the process or inaugurated the process of creation. It was God's word that created God's word is more than mere talk. In Genesis 1 and Psalm 33 and verse 6, God's word is his power at work to create. And regarding salvation, Psalm 107 verse 20 and Ezekiel 37 are going to make the same point. That God's word is more than mere talk. In these two passages, we'll see that God's word is his power at work In these cases, to save. Psalm 107 and verse 20. He sent out His Word and healed them. God's Word heals from affliction leading to death. In Psalm 107 and verse 20. God's Word is more than mere talk then. In Psalm 107 and verse 20. God's Word is His power at work to save. And the famous passage of Ezekiel's vision of dry bones makes the same point. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel prophesies to a valley full of dry bones and they come to life. The prophet writes, He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. What did that? The word of the Lord. The dry bones heard the word of the Lord. But there was no breath in them, Ezekiel goes on to say. Then he, that is the Lord, said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the word of the Lord. Pardon me, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What made the dry bones live? God's Word. 
Again, this is not merely that God gave the word that a process should begin whereby the dry bones would live. God's word did not merely affect a process of genetic reconstitution and this and that and whatever. Cloning or something like this. God's word made the dry bones live. It was God's word directly, immediately, which made the dry bones live. So, throughout the Old Testament, God's word is a revealer of God, but God's word is also the active power of God. God's word is God's power at work. Throughout the Old Testament. The word we read about then in John. Coming back to John chapter 1. The word isn't simply here to teach us something then. But also to do something. The word is not going to do less than teach. He's going to be a revealer. But he is going to do more than teach. The Word is going to be God's active power at work. As God's Word created the world in the first place, so we see the theme of new creation. Here in John chapter 1, as the Apostle draws rather obvious parallels with Genesis chapter 1. He speaks of light piercing the darkness. Life entering the world. He uses the phrase, in the beginning which has unmistakable connections to Genesis chapter 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John even refers to creation explicitly, saying that all things were made through Him, that is the Word, and without Him, that is the Word, was not anything made that was made. So clearly he's bringing this theme of the Word as Creator to the forefront, alluding to a new creation. That is about to be brought into effect through this word. And we certainly see this theme of salvation here in John 1. As the apostle talks about how the word brings light to the darkness. Life to the dead. And makes children of those yet outside of God's family. God's word has come then. As... In John's Gospel, as it did in the Old Testament, to save. The Word, in summary of this section then, is going to be a revealer of God, and is going to be God's active power to recreate and to save. This is what we should import from the Old Testament usage of the term into John's meaning when he uses the term, the Word. We should hear in John's use of the term, the Word, that Jesus is going to be a revealer of God, and that Jesus is going to be God's power at work. So far, even the Jehovah's Witnesses could agree. The passage says more than this. John tells us, That the Word is also God 
Himself. The Word is God's self-same person. That the Word of God, that the Word, pardon me, is God, is evident first from the grammar of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek is quite clear. In the Greek it says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Jehovah's Witnesses following the 4th century heretic Arius have misunderstood what John was saying in John chapter 1 and verse 1. Speaking of the Jehovah's Witnesses' own distinct translation of the Bible, Anthony Hukuma says, Their New World translation of the Bible is by no means an objective rendering of the sacred text into modern English, but it is a biased translation in which many of the peculiar teachings of the Watchtower Society are smuggled into the text of the Bible itself. Though Hukuma was a professor of systematic theology at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, this is not a particularly reformed perspective or a peculiarly reformed perspective. Here's Bruce Metzger, who held what we would consider to be a liberal perspective on the nature of the Bible. But he was nevertheless an expert in the field of biblical languages. He says, The Jehovah's Witnesses have incorporated in their translation of the New Testament several quite erroneous renderings of the Greek. Remember that this is coming from someone who does not hold a reformed or even a conservative evangelical view of the Bible. His authority is being appealed to here. I'm appealing to his authority here. Not as one who shares the same doctrine with us, but as a professor of New Testament language and literature at the liberal but world-class institution of Princeton Theological Seminary from 1940 to 1986. I'm appealing to him here not as one who is an expert in interpreting the text, but as one who was truly an expert in the biblical text itself and in issues then of translating the biblical text itself. According to James Moorhead, who was one of Metzger's former colleagues at Princeton, Metzger's knowledge of the relevant languages, ancient and modern, was unrivaled. And again, his assessment is that the Jehovah's Witnesses have incorporated in their translation of the New Testament several quite erroneous renderings of the Greek. Okay, listen, listen to this. The Jehovah's Witnesses themselves even say that readers of their translation, quote, will generally find that some other translators have also seen the need to express the matter in a similar manner. <laughs> the obvious implication is that in some cases, readers will find that no other translators have seen the need to express themselves in a similar manner. At least the Jehovah's Witnesses are to be commended for their self-incriminating honesty on that point. Hukuma's assessment is correct then. The New World Translation of the Bible is by no means an objective rendering of the sacred text into modern English, but is a biased translation in which many of the peculiar teachings of the Watchtower Society are smuggled into the text of the Bible itself. 
Metzger, who I quoted earlier, he was the professor of <clears throat> languages at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1940 to 1986. Metzger says they hear in John chapter 1 and verse 1. There is a what he calls a pernicious rendering of the Greek text. A pernicious rendering of the Greek text. And the pernicious rendering in the New World Translation of John chapter 1 and verse 1 is this. And the word was a God. We have to deal with this here because it's a life issue in Barbados. Is, is Jesus God or is Jesus a divine being? In other words, is Jesus Jehovah? Is, is God Trinity or not? These are massive issues. The New World Translation says the word was a God. Metzger continues his critique. He says, such a rendering is a frightful mistranslation. It overlooks entirely an established rule of Greek grammar which necessitates the rendering and the word was God. If anyone's interested, I can provide a link to Metzger's full article in which he explains his position more fully. But I'm no expert in Greek and neither are you, frankly, and neither are the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door. So I figured that incorporating all of the technical details in my sermon would go over all of our heads and therefore would be ill-advised. But my point in all this, and my point in quoting both Hukuma and Metzger, is this. It is clear to scholars, both conservative and liberal, who are experts in the biblical text and issues of translation, that the Greek does say, and the word was God. So that the word is God is evident first from the grammar of verse 1. That the word of God is evident, pardon me, that the word is God is evident second from the assertion in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, let's just get real simple here. And the New World Translation has this verse rendered the same way in theirs. So this is a talking point that I've raised with them up in Market Hill as they've come to visit me. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Okay. In view of verse 3, was the word made or was the word the maker? Look at your Bibles. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Leon Morris makes the obvious answer to this question explicit. The word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the word was not created. The word is not to be included among created things. So both grammatically from verse 1 and doctrinally from verse 3, 
John chapter 1 is very clear that the Word was God. Therefore, the Word is not only a revealer of God and God's active power at work. The Word is God. The Word is God's self-same person. Here are three things then that you need to do with this truth. The first is seek to know Jesus. If you want to know God, get to know the words whom God has sent to be the consummate revealer. You see, the word that John introduces us to here in John chapter 1 is not just one more revealer. It's not just one more word in a long line of words. He is the definitive word. He is the clearest word. He is the fullest word. He is the final word. He is the last bus stop. Everybody off. You can't go farther than Jesus in terms of revealing, pardon me, in terms of receiving revelation from God. Men of old spoke God's word. Jesus is God's word. Therefore, in seeking to know God, seek to know Jesus. Second thing that you need to do with the truth that we've talked about this morning is look to Jesus for salvation. God sent to us the word that John introduces to us in order that he might be our Savior. And God's word, as God's word was God's active power in the Old Testament, creating and saving, so the word of John's gospel is God's active power toward us in the new covenant. It is by this word that we may become a new creation. And by this word that as Romans 8 and verse 21 says, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. In other words, it is by this word, the word introduced to us here in John chapter 1, that as Revelation 22 and, pardon me, 21 and verse 5 says, God is making all things new. It is by the word introduced to us here in John's gospel, God's active power at work, that we are saved. Lean on Him then. Trust Him. Look to Him for the salvation from sin that you so desperately need to be free from its penalty, to be free from its power, and one day to be free from its environment. Jesus is the Word of God, the active power of God, by whom, through whom, He is at work to save. Look to Jesus for salvation. And then thirdly, worship Jesus. The Word of John's Gospel is not a revealer like Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah were. They were men who relayed God's word to us 
without themselves being God. On the contrary, when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Not only is the content divine. In other words, we can read the prophet Isaiah and say that those words are God's words. But when Jesus speaks, it's different. Because not only is the content divine, but the speaker is divine. And the word introduced to us here in John's Gospel is not a savior the way that Old Testament kings like David were. Acting merely as agents of God's salvation. Yet again, without themselves being God. On the contrary, when Jesus acts, not only is the end result that God has saved, the way that the Israelites could praise the Lord after the Lord worked a great salvation for them through the King David, defeating their enemies before them. Not only is the end result that God has saved, but when Jesus acts, God is the one who is very directly and immediately doing the saving. Since Jesus is not then merely God's agent, but God Himself, we ought to do more than simply worship God for Him. But we ought to worship Him. Our exclamation ought to be that of Thomas. In John chapter 20 and verse 28 cried out as he saw the resurrected Christ. My Lord and my God. Either that or we ought to be hushed in reverential awe. As O. Palmer Robertson puts it. Commenting on Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. Which says, let all the earth keep silent before him. There's a Christmas song based on Habakkuk 2.20. An ancient song. The words of which were written in the 5th century. It captures something of the gravity and the majesty of the incarnation. In a way that many of the cheerful, chipper Christmas carols perhaps fall short. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood. Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood. He will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank the host of heaven Spreads its vanguard on the way. As the light of light descendeth. From the realms of endless day.
that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia! 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 Lord Most High! The use of the title, The Word, in the opening verses of John's Gospel, teach us that the Jesus we're about to read about reveals God and is God's active power. And more than that, that He is God Himself come on a rescue mission to save us. In view of these things, let us only and ever alternate between the two appropriate responses to these glorious truths. Let us always and only be either exclaiming, my Lord and my God, or let us be hushed in reverential awe before Him.